All right, Genesis chapter 2, uh, we've, been working, we've been working through a series. I'm not going to be long tonight. I know we've got a busy week ahead. I think there's some, still some music practices going on. Uh, but I want to speak about the manuscripts that are involved when we're choosing a Bible version. This morning, if you weren't in here, uh, I, I won't uh, go through the whole thing, but I, I went through and listed some of the words that have been omitted from the newer versions of the Bible. Uh, for example... The New International Version omits 5,219 words. <clears throat> the Revised Standard Version, almost 7,000 words taken out of the Bible. We preached a message about the importance of the words, every word in the Bible. I went through and uh, we read through probably about 15 verses that the modern versions take out of the Bible. And the reason they say they do that, and I read this explanation to you this morning, but I'll read it to you again as we jump into our message tonight. The reason they say that is this, because certain verses don't appear in some of the earliest and most reliable Bible manuscripts, some modern Bibles don't include them. All right, and this morning we gave you the air quotes, right? The air quotes on the earliest and most reliable Bible manuscripts, because they're not really. That's just what they're called. Uh, so that's, that's generally the idea, is uh, the newer versions of the Bible go back to the older manuscripts that are more reliable. The King James Version of the Bible, well, yeah, that was nice in its time. It uses newer manuscripts, which aren't as old, and less reliable manuscripts. Now, that's, that's what they want you to think. That's the idea. So that's why I want to teach this lesson tonight, talking about the manuscripts. And I, I know this is... This is, a bit, this is a bit challenging type of teaching sometimes because there's a lot of information. So I'm going to go fast with the information. I don't want church to become like, a, like just an educational experience, not just like a classroom, not just like school. Um, we don't ever want it to be that. But you do need to learn. We, we need, uh, after the service this morning, two different people came up to me and said, I use, and they told me the version of the Bible they use, and they said, basically along the lines, I appreciate what you taught this morning because I just didn't know. And as I learned from my mother-in-law a long time ago, you only know what you know. And that, that, that's helpful philosophy right there. So I'm going to help, hopefully help you learn a little bit and then uh, really help you to inform your, your philosophy. So Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse number 16. This is where God speaks to Adam. And I don't know that he was there. We know that he's talking to Adam, though. And he is giving him the command about the Garden of Eden and the tree of knowledge. So right here in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Uh, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying... So this is the Word of God. I know everything in the Bible is the Word of God, but these are direct. This is a direct quote. It's like, thus saith the Lord. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. There's the command. Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. Then he gives the consequence. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, Thou shalt surely die. Those were God's words. That is exactly what God said. You go to the next chapter, chapter 3 and verse 1, you've got the serpent. He's more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. We don't know what the serpent looked like. I, I, I know we've seen art, and you picture a big snake with legs. 
I don't know that it looked like a snake at all. The serpent was probably an amazing, uh, uh, an amazing creation, an amazing looking thing. I don't know that it even looked like a serpent, anything like a serpent. Probably didn't have the, it probably wasn't like a snake with legs. But then God cursed it, totally changed it up. But either, either way, the serpent's there, it's more subtle. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. What happened right there? It's like a timeout. Let's look at this. It's like the referee stopping the game and saying, okay, let's look at this. Let's look at this in slow motion and freeze frame. All right? What just happened right there? The serpent comes into the Garden of Eden, and he says, hath God said? What is that? that is, is that a question or a statement? That is a question. Yea, hath God said? That's a question. Hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What is the very first type of words that this serpent said. We, we, I believe this serpent to uh, either uh, be representing the devil, possessed of the devil, or maybe him, he himself. I don't know exactly. We'll know that one of these days. The Bible calls um, uh, the devil a dragon, calls him a serpent. We, we understand that this is Satan influencing the serpent. So this is Satan, this is Lucifer, the fallen, the, the devil, and he is asking a question. The very first words the devil speaks to man is a question. And the question is about the word of God. Yea, hath God said. A question about the word of God. Hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Here's, what, here's what's happening. The serpent comes into the garden and questions the word of God. We're going to probably mention this a few times through this series. So he questions the word of God. Now, move on to verse 2. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said... Now, she's quoting God now, but she misquotes him. She said, He, ye shall not eat of it. That's what God said. She added to it, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now, we don't know why she added to it, but she did add to it, because God didn't say anything about touching it. He said, ye shall not eat it, in the day ye eat of it, thou shalt surely die. So, uh, he questions, Satan questions the word of God, and, and then she says what she thinks the word of God says, but then here comes Satan again in verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. So the first statement was actually a question. What is this statement? God said this, and then now the serpent says, Ye shall not surely die. Now it's a contradiction. So first was a question. Now he is contradicting the word of God. That's how the devil works. He questions the word of God. He contradicts the word of God. And then verse 5 happens. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof. Like, this is what God should have said, right? If I was a scholarly preacher, I would be saying, now in the Greek, this is what it means, and this is what the King James Bible should have said, right? So that, that's basically what, what's happening here. So the devil's saying this, in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as God's knowing good and evil. That's what God should have said is what the serpent's saying here. 
Because he knows this, he's just keeping it from him. Now he's not questioning, now he's not contradicting. What is he doing? He is changing. He's adding to the words of God and he's changing the words of God. Now I want to go back to that question. Yea, hath God said? Did God say? Now the original autographs are the inspired word of God. A little bit of review from last week. The inspired word of God. God spoke People wrote. The Apostle Paul wrote exactly what God spoke to him to write. The received, and we know that because that's what the Bible says, holy men of God, uh, spake as they were moved of the Holy Ghost. The Bible says that is exactly how that happened. Um, the received text manuscripts, that's the Textus Receptus, the received text, the, the group of 5,200, 5,200 manuscripts that uh, agree with each other. They're exact copies of the original autographs so, if they're an exact copy of the original, they are also the inspired Word of God. God inspired it the first time. If it's an exact copy, there's no changes. It is also the inspired Word of God. It didn't have to be re-inspired each copy. It's just the exact same thing. It's the inspired Word of God. The Textus Receptus, or the received text where we get the King James Version of the Bible from, it's simply a type set and printed copy of the received text manuscript. So you have manuscripts that are handwritten. You've got the original autograph. you got a copy that's handwritten. Then you get to where Erasmus compiles these. He puts them together and now prints them. They're the same words. So it's an exact copy of the manuscript, which is the inspired Word of God. So if it's an exact copy, it is the inspired Word. Word of God. Do, do, do you see the, the track here? The autograph, God gave it, it's inspired. The copy, it's an exact copy, so it's inspired. Now you've got another exact copy, but it's not handwritten. Now it's printed. And it is also an inspired Word of God. The King James Bible is a perfect word-for-word -word translation of the Textus Receptus. So you've got the original autograph, it's written, God says it, it's written. It's copied exactly, so it's inspired. Then it's printed. The difference is now it's not just copied by him, now it's printed. Also inspired because it's an exact copy. Now you go from Greek to English. It's printed, it's an exact copy, it's a different language, but it's exactly word for word, a translation from Greek to English, so now we have an exact copy. It is also inspired, perfect, word-for-word -word translation of the Textus Receptus, which came from the copies, that's the manuscripts, which came from the original autograph, which came from God. So what I'm, what I'm helping you to understand, what I want you to understand, is that if you hold the King James Bible, you are holding the exact inspired perfect Word of God. If you understand that, it's going to clear up so much. If you believe that, it means you have the words of God. If you don't believe that, you still have the words of God, but you don't think you have the words of God. If you're holding the King James Version of the Bible, I believe you are holding the very words of God. He spoke them to people who wrote them down in Greek and in Hebrew and in Aramaic. They were copied, translated, but word for word, so we have the very words 
of God. That's why we can say it. That's why we can say, I believe I have a word-for-word Bible. I believe I have the words of God. Now, the people who uh, are promoting the new versions of the Bible don't believe they have a word-for-word Bible. For several hundred years, very few people questioned that the King James or the Textus Receptus or the received text manuscripts, they didn't question that those were the Word of God. Uh, they didn't question that they were the inspired Word of God. So here, here's a question. Why are there so many people that question it now? For hundreds of years they didn't question it, but now they do. Why are there so many English Bible versions? Why are new Bibles still being published so often? I don't know how often it is. For a while it was about every six months a new translation, new version of the Bible was coming out. So why? Why is that? I believe the answer is actually very simple. Satan hates the Word of God. And he's done everything he can to destroy it ever since the beginning. He questions the Word of God. He contradicts the Word of God. And then he does this. He changes the Word of God. We went through how Satan asked Eve, Yea, hath God said? She didn't answer. She didn't know the answer. Because she had listened to Satan's version of God's words. You listen to Satan's version of God's words, you're not going to know, yea, hath God said. If you're to ask most English-speaking Christians the same question, yea, hath God said? Did God say this? They wouldn't know the answer because they don't believe they actually know what God said. They don't believe they have the words of God. Now, I I believe a lot of Christians do believe they have the words of God, but their pastors and seminary professors don't. If you were to ask the average Christian, I, I think a lot of them do believe they have the word of God. They haven't been educated yet. They've been confused by so many different versions of the Word of God. Satan has successfully used an abundance of versions of God's Word to destroy people's faith in the perfect Word of God. But Satan's made attempts to destroy God's Word, but it's still here. Why? Because God promised to preserve His Word forever. And since Satan can't destroy God's Word, he's going to cause people to doubt it. And if you doubt it, you're not going to believe it. That just kind of makes sense, right? You doubt it, you don't believe it. Also, if you doubt it, you're not going to obey it. And that's a problem because you get saved by believing the Word of God. You believe what God said about Jesus. You believe about what God said about heaven and hell and sin. And you trust Jesus Christ by believing. And then you live the Christian life by obeying the Word of God. And if you can't believe it or obey it, we've got trouble. And that's exactly where the devil wants us to be. I'm going to go quickly this evening. And we're going to follow two lines. One line, the line from uh, the original manuscript. We'll we'll do this one fast because we've already been talking about the original autograph to the King James Version of the Bible. We'll go through that really, really fast. And then I want you to see the other line, which goes from the original autographs. But it goes through uh, Alexandria, Egypt, where there was a Bible college there, if you will, where it was changed into the Catholic Church and and, and then to the, the modern versions of the Bible. We're going to follow those two lines. I'm going to try to do it quickly. And um, uh, I'll try to do it. Uh, uh, here's, here's what I've got. It's like every one of us has this little timer in our brain. And it, it's already been twisted to go. And it's like... And at some point, it just goes ding. And we go to sleep. So I'm going to do it fast. And help me out with that, okay? So 
From the original autographs to KJV, in order for the King James Version to be the perfect Word of God, three things needed to happen. Follow with me here. The handwritten copies that became known as the received text had to have been faithful copies of the original autographs. They had to be exact. So the original autographs, you had to have a faithful copy and a faithful copy. Last week in the evening, we went through the details of how the scribes did that. I won't go deep into that tonight. The second thing that had to happen, Erasmus, he's the one that compiled the Textus Receptus, and other printers after him of the Textus Receptus had to have been faithful in their work. They had to print the exact an exact copy of what they, were, what they were printing. They had to make it an exact translation. And they couldn't just change letters here and there. They couldn't just change words here and there. Number three, the translators of the King James Version of the Bible must have been faithful to translate the Textus Receptus into English without changing any words. If those three things happen, then the King James Version of the Bible is the exact, perfect copy Translation of the original autographs. Test number one was proof that the manuscripts were perfect copies of the original autographs. That's got to happen. The methods of copying the manuscripts, the complete agreement of the received manuscripts, that means they all agreed with each other. They, um, the received manuscripts, the 5,200 manuscripts that, that we have, they don't contradict each other. The fact that they agree with each other, they're the same as each other, um, the fact that the churches, um, they accepted these, uh, accept these uh, received manuscripts. That's why they call them the received manuscripts. Um, and um, and they, they accept them as the Word of God. They got rid of the ones that were corrupted, but they kept the ones that were the accepted manuscripts. Those three things help us understand that the handwritten copies known as the Textus Receptus or Received Text were faithful copies of original autographs. Then we've got a find out, was the Textus Receptus a perfect copy of the received text? Listen to this. Erasmus, he compiled these, these manuscripts together. His Textus Receptus was compared to several of the received text manuscripts. They're, the only mistakes that were in it were typesetting errors. The wrong letter put in the wrong place. That type of a thing. They were quickly corrected within a few years. And now even liberal scholars that don't agree that the King James Version is, is the perfect word of God or the best, even those people agree the Textus Receptus is a perfect representation of the manuscripts that it was copied from. Even the people that don't like it agree it is a perfect representation of what it was supposed to be representing. So on, on, on two accounts now, we, we have proof of the King James Version of the Bible being the exact copy of the originals. But then you got number three, and I want to take some time on this. The King James Version translators had to faithfully translate from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek into English. They had to be careful. They could, it couldn't just be a group of people. It wasn't just a pastor somewhere in England that said, you know what, I, I just want to make a different version of the Bible. It wasn't just one person. It wasn't, uh, uh, wasn't uneducated people. And I want to go through this to help you understand. So it was 1604. So it was a long time ago. And just because it was a long time ago, here's what we do. We think, okay, a long time ago they were dumb back then. That's our idea. That's, that's the way we think. Um, it's, it's actually the opposite of that. They're, very, they're brilliant people. Um, they would study. They, they didn't have mind-numbing devices that, uh, that, uh, that rotted their brain. They were, these, were, uh, these particular people, they were 54 scholars, experts in many languages, 
And here's what happened. They divided into six teams of nine people. All right, 56 or 54 of them. Six teams of nine people. So I want you to picture this. Let's pretend like there's 54 of us here tonight. There's not quite that, but let's pretend we're going to divide into six different teams. So you've got a team here, a team there. Uh, so you've got this team, that team, the back team, and then three teams over here. So let's say we're all, we're all six different teams here. And we're going to work together to translate this Bible. Pretend like you're these 54 scholars. Now, seven years later, there are only uh, 47 of them left, but they started with 54. So these, these six different teams, they met in two different cities, and each team was given responsibility for a section of the Bible. So it would be like, I'm going to give this team uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. All right, This team will maybe have the prophets, uh, gospels, uh, letters from Paul, you know, that type of thing. And so that team, you're going to take this section of the Greek or Hebrew, Aramaic, and you're going to translate it. But the team didn't translate it. Each individual translated it. So you've got 56 different people, 54 different people doing their own translation. So in your team, you got nine people in your team. Let's pretend like there's a team right here. you got nine people in your team. Each one of you is going to translate every word of the Gospels. Every single word. You're going to translate it. Then you're going to come back together as a team and you're going to sit around this table and you're going to go through every single word, one word at a time. Do we agree this is the right word? Yes. Do we agree this is the right word? Yes. If you have a word that you don't all nine agree on, you're going to talk about it. You're going to figure it out. You're going to discuss it, maybe even argue about it until you have a unanimous consensus in the, between the nine of you of what the right word ought to be. Then you move to the next word. So every single word translated nine times, brought together, and then all nine of them looking at each single word. Every single word all the way through the section that your group is responsible for translating. After your group um, goes through that process, you have come up with, a, with one, one translation that every single person, nine people in your group agreed, this is it. That translation now is given to the other five groups. All five of those groups go through that every single word at a time. Is this the right word? Is this the right word? Is this the right word? If it wasn't, it was brought back to them, explained this uh, doesn't seem to be the right word, until there was a consensus that every word in the Bible is the right word. That's why it took seven years. 54 people, seven years to, to come up with this translation of the Bible. It wasn't just something that happened overnight. It wasn't something that had to be hurried to press. It, it wasn't something that had to come out quickly so we, so we don't, don't lose our opportunity here. Seven years. There were no errors due to rushing to finish. They weren't in a rush. There were no errors due to word choice. Each man was an expert in the original language and the English language. And if a translator did make an error in word choice, it was corrected by their group and by the entire team. Do you see the fail-safe measures that were in place here to make sure that every single word that God spoke to man, it was copied and uh, copied exact, 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 tra now translated into English every single word. No other translation or version of the Bible has gone through anywhere close to that 
type of a, a rigorous translation. In fact, no other piece of uh, work in history or literature in history has had that uh, much um, accuracy uh, or, or translated with as high, high a level of care for its accuracy. So that's the King James Version of the Bible. The other versions of the Bible come from the same, the same original autographs. But then in, in a, they, they, there, there was a Bible college, if I can describe it that way. It was 190 A.D. He had a school in Egypt, Alexandria, Egypt. His name was Clement. Now, the school that he was over agreed with a lot of what would become the Catholic Church ended up believing. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, the school was an official institution of the Catholic Church back then in 190 A.D. Clement, the guy in charge of it, influenced another man. His name was Origen. These two men, um, they, they had a huge influence on these original autographs and changing them to agree with what they wanted to teach. They didn't want to, uh, people to, to, to believe exactly like the New Testament taught because the Catholic Church and other, other religions like that, they can't survive if people see what the, real, what the Bible really says. So a trained priest, the school trained priests who would um, mix Eastern mysticism with biblical Christianity. And that's what Catholic Church is. Catholic Church is a mix of biblical Christianity and wherever they took it, and the pagan beliefs in that area. I remember a, a missionary coming in from South America and telling us how the Catholic Church in that area was so different than the Catholic Church in America because it, uh, it basically it went down to South America and it took the beliefs of the Catholic Church and it mixed them with the ancestor worship and all that stuff that was going on there in South America. And that's what the Catholic Church did everywhere it went. And these false religions do that. They'll take uh, some truth and they'll mix it with whatever pagan religion is going on. That's exactly what happened in Rome. That's what the Catholic Church does. So Clement and Origen, they wrote a new manuscript of the Bible because the received text didn't support what they were teaching. And whenever you're trying to teach something that's wrong, one of the ways that you can convince people that what you're teaching is right is you just change the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses did it. The Mormons have done it. Um, uh, different groups of people have done a lot, a lot of Christian churches are doing that now, and that's what Clement and Origen did. Um, so the writings of a group of people at that time known as the Church Fathers, uh, these were men who, uh, who uh, did a lot of writing, and the back and forth, they would quote the Scriptures a lot, and uh, they, they rejected Clement and Origen as heretics in their lifetime. The corrupted manuscripts from Clement and Origen were never received as, or accepted as received texts. Now, in 302 AD, um, a huge thing happened. The, the Roman Empire attempted to destroy all the Christian sacred writings. So Bibles, scriptures, letters to each other, all of that was, they, they tried to destroy it. That was 302 AD. Then Constantine supposedly converts to Christianity. The Roman Empire decides, hey, instead of getting rid of the Bible, we're going to push the Bible. We're going to circulate the Bible everywhere. And they chose a, a text. They didn't choose the received text as the scriptures that they were going to spread throughout the empire. They chose the corrupted manuscripts from Clement and Origen's school there in Alexandria, Egypt. 
There was a group of people that refused to accept the corrupt manuscripts. It's the same group of people that refused to rebaptize. I'm sorry, to, to accept the, the Catholic Church and, and required that people would get rebaptized. It was the same group of people that refused to accept the Pope and the other leaders in the Roman Empire. It's estimated that between 50 million and 68 million people were martyred over this issue. They wouldn't accept the scripture that the Roman Empire was saying, this is the scripture. 50 million people on the low estimate of that. How many manuscripts survived? Well, there's only about 5,200 manuscripts that survived all of that. 68 million people, potentially. Let's say 50 million. 50 million people died to preserve 5,200 pieces of paper. 50 million people died to, to preserve the, the pieces of paper that we have uh, translated into this book. Right, 50 million people, uh, we, we sing the song, when I, find, when I hear what it costs just to hold in my hand, I, I'm reminded I owe a great debt to all the martyrs who've gone on before, to quote it with their final breath. That's what we're talking about. The 50 million people, maybe even 68, that died because they refused Clement and Origen's Corrupt manuscripts. Those corrupt manuscripts made it into, into the Catholic Church. Uh, Jerome's a Latin Vulgate came from those. Several copies of the corrupt Alexandrian manuscripts, copies of them were made in 350 A.D. Right, so we move fast forward. Um, from, from Clement and Origen School, now it's 350 A.D. I know that's still a long time ago. But we've moved fast forward, 350 AD, and some copies of those are made. One of those copies was discovered. It was in a pile of discarded manuscripts in the Vatican Library. It was discovered in uh, about 1400 AD, about the time when Columbus uh, was, was coming across the ocean blue. All right, so it was, it was made about 350 AD. But you got to remember, this particular manuscript was a copy that came from Origen and Clement, promoted by the Catholic Church, promoted by the Roman Empire as the new Word of God. It's found in the Vatican Library. Now, that is why it's called one of the earliest manuscripts. Because it was found, and it's one of the earliest ones we've got. Now, when new version promoters tell you that the new versions were translated from older manuscripts, this is what they're talking about. The manuscript was found before Erasmus compiled the Textus Receptus. So they came to Erasmus and said, look, this is an older manuscript. It's an earlier manuscript. You should use this one. Erasmus rejected it because just like he rejected the rest of the 5% that didn't agree with the received text, it wasn't the Word of God. So it didn't make it into the Textus Receptus. It was rejected Vaticanus was discovered in 1481, lying on a shelf, uh, collecting dust in the Vatican Library. Now, the Catholic Church still owns it. In the Gospels alone, it leaves out whole words, whole clauses, 1,491 times. In the Gospels, it leaves out 749 entire sentences. It leaves out 2,877 words in the Gospels alone, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
It doesn't, listen to this, the Vaticanus doesn't contain 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, doesn't have Titus, it doesn't have the book of Revelation in it. Instead of the book of Revelation, it has uh, the shepherd of Hermes. Hermes is a Greek god. All these, these things were put in instead. It cuts off Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. And interestingly enough, Hebrews chapter 10 is a chapter that forbids the Catholic priesthood. Interesting that it was cut off right there. So that is one of the earliest and most reliable manuscripts that they're talking about. It came from, um, through Constantine, for Origen and Clement, the wrong uh, line of manuscripts. And we talk about the wrong line of manuscripts, not just somebody just, uh, which one's going to be the right one, let's pick this one. It wasn't that. It was based on which ones were accurate, which ones were corrupted. Clement and Origen intentionally corrupted the manuscripts to match their false teaching. Constantine and the Roman Empire uh, uh, pushed that, uh, those manuscripts while trying to destroy the other manuscripts. That's just the way the devil's working. Let me give you one more and we'll be done. The second of these Alexandrian manuscripts, the corrupt manuscripts, was found in 1844 in the remains of a Catholic monastery on the Sinai Peninsula. Sinaiticus was rescued from a pile of trash papers that were in a basket to be burned. Some of them got burned. The whole thing didn't, um, it was rescued in time. The, the other, other papers in this pile already getting burned. It was, it was ready to, to be burned. The man who found it insisted it was from the 4th century. That'd be like 350 AD, but never found any proof that it was older than the 12th century. There are over 14,800 corrections in the Sinaiticus manuscript. Words and sentences are dropped due to carelessness. Letters, words, whole sentences are written twice over or begun, immediately canceled. Compared to the Textus Receptus, 3,455 words are omitted in the Gospels alone. That is the most reliable manuscript. So Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, you, you hear all the sentences left out, the words left out, the clauses left out, the phrases left out. Uh, the, this, the, they, they were not good manuscripts. Uh, they were corrupt manuscripts. They were missing so much. And still, New Bible version promoters say the New Bible versions leave out verses and they leave out words and they change words because the earliest and most reliable manuscripts don't have them. That's what they're talking about. They're talking about Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. By 1844, the oldest manuscripts of the Alexandrian text were written on paper that dated back to 350 A.D. The oldest known manuscripts of the received text was written on paper that dated back to 375 A.D. So not quite as old, 25-year-old difference. But let me ask you this. If the Alexandrian manuscripts were equal to or better than the received text manuscripts, why did more than 50 million people choose to die to have the received text? Why would they die for something that's not as good? Since 1844, archaeologists have found manuscripts that go all the way back to 120 A.D., and they read just like the Texas Receptus, but the new version of promoters aren't going to tell you about those. Um, I'm going to jump ahead so we can be done. Promoters of the new Bible versions, they reject the 5,200 manuscripts that more than 50 million people died for, and instead they've chosen two manuscripts that have been rejected for over 1,400 years. That's the, that's basically, that's the bottom line. In 1881, 
two men named Westcott and Hort used these corrupted manuscripts to write the new Greek text. The new Greek text now is used for every new version of the Bible. A spokesman for Zondervan, they're the ones that published the New American Standard Bible, the New International Version, the Revised Standard Version, and other ones. The spokesman said this, all the versions starting with the Revised Standard Version in 1881 all the way to the present have adopted the basic approach of Westcott and Hort and accepted their Greek text. So you've got a choice. You've got the original autographs, and we see what happened all the way to the King James Version of the Bible. You see how the King James Version of the Bible is translated. You've got the original autographs, and you see all the way what happened, going through Origen and Clement, going through Alexandria, going through uh, Constantine, going through the Roman Empire, uh, going through Westcott and Hort until you get to the point where you get the new Bible versions. You just need to understand that things that are different can't be the same. You either have the Word of God or you don't have the Word of God. And, and, and as, as Christians, we need to know, if I am holding the King James Version of the Bible, I can be confident I have an every word accurate translation of the inspired Word of God. You need to know that. You need to understand that. You need to understand that the other versions of the Bible aren't really the Bible. They, they may contain some of the thoughts. They may contain a lot of similarities, but it's not the Word of God. Right. If you take out the words of God, it's not the Word of God. Father, I pray that you would use this message, um, different type of a message for Sunday night, but hopefully helpful. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to uh, take a stand. Fifty million people died um, taking this very same stand that um, we're challenged to take right now. And it's, uh, it's a different, uh, different landscape now where most Christians, the majority of Christians in our, in our English-speaking world have changed and they don't really even have, they don't believe they have an every word Bible. Um, they're not taking a stand. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do that. And Lord, I pray that you would use your word. I pray that you'd help us to read your word and to, to study your word. So many people died standing for it. You preserved it for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to read it, study it, and learn it. Lord, please work in our hearts. Help us to grow closer to you. And Lord, thank you for giving us the Bible. Thank you for giving us every word, preserving every word. You know we need it. Lord, thank you for giving it to us. I'm going to ask you to stand. The piano is going to play. Your heads are bowed. Your eyes are closed. Just, just a short invitation tonight. Would you thank God for his word? Would you thank God for preserving it for you? Thank God for giving it to you. I know there are people that are going to completely contradict what you heard tonight. I've heard it. I've studied it a lot. They're going to say, but all those words over all those centuries, there's no way but they had to change. There's no way they could have been exact. We're talking about God here. If He could give us His Word, don't you think He could preserve His Word? Absolutely. 
if he could give us his word. And we preach this morning. He cares about every single word we say. Don't you think he cares about every single word he said? He could preserve it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for caring enough about us that you would give it to us. Thank you for inspiring it. Thank you for giving it to the the men of old and and, um, so they would write it. And then those who dedicated so much of their life to copy it and then to translate it and then to print it. And then, Lord, those people in our lives who've dedicated their life to preach it and to live it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not waste all of that. Help us to live our life for you. Help us to study your word. Help us to learn your word. Lord, I pray that you would use your word in a powerful way in each one of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.